day yesterday okay yeah we were sitting around we set up the meeting on a sunday on a sunday i know i, I did a meeting on a sunday which okay is against all sorts of things i believe in but <laughs> here we were sitting around and yeah we had a dog foster mom bring over a little puppy yep the dog mom yep and we were like pretty we had been um you know, pretty reserved about it. Like up till then, we were like, oh, I don't know if this fits all our plans and all the things we want to do and all this. You know, we were really kind of. I don't know about that. You were sending me an awful lot of text messages we were... <laughs> about how excited you were. Oh, I was very excited. But like, because <laughs> it was exciting. But it's one of those things. You get a dog. Suddenly, you know, I work from home. Suddenly, I am the dog sitter. Suddenly, day. you have a best friend. That is true. I've been sitting alone in my home working for going on almost four years now. Wouldn't it be so nice for you to like talk to somebody and have them be actually like there and be able to listen to you? That would be a marked change um, <laughs> from where from where things are at right now. Um, so that's good. Um, but yeah, so the dog came over, mm-hmm. little puppy, mm-hmm. eight weeks old, oh. five pounds, oh. just a baby. And just a grumpy little baby. It really was grumpy. And that, I think, I was reflecting on why I was so smitten with this dog. And I think that mostly the reason is that it just looks like it's having a terrible time, even yeah. though it is. And that's it's kind of like Swedish, me. It's yeah. a Swedish puppy. That's kind of like how I am in every social gathering. I yeah. like look like I'm just ready to leave, even when I'm having a good time. Um, so it's, it's the pacing that does it. It's yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> the dog paced a little, too. Um but it was good, so we're keeping the dog, though. So you yeah. get him in a week or two? We, like a week, a week and a half, Ish. somewhere in there. Something and like that. And then I can, you know, it's really funny. We were, like, trying to pick, you know, names and stuff. We were, like, going through, what are we going to name this mm-hmm. dog? And the thing that uh, one of the one of the names my wife threw out, she's like, we should name it Augie. <gasps> <laughs> Can't do that. There's already <laughs> and, a literary agent's dog. So that's what I said, of course. Speaking, of course, of um, Eric Smith's Corgi of internet fame, still with many more Twitter, Twitter followers than me. Agent um, Augie. This dog. Yep. Um, but <laughs> it would be like a pretty incredible bit to just like get a dog and as a literary agent named Eric and name it Augie. Why? And won't... just like start, okay, so my... start tweeting as though, like, oh, look, I've got this cute little dog. It's doing queries with me. <laughs> like, just like just totally steal the <laughs> just like because it's eight weeks old, right? <laughs> yeah. So you, I, I mean, I know that you've already been thinking about other names mm-hmm. and that this is not at all my decision, but yeah. I didn't get to name my dog because my dog came with this like funny name that yeah. all like grown men just like chuckled at, That's a and good so name, we kept yeah. yeah Moose, so yeah. we kept it right. Yeah. Um, and so I've I've been having some thoughts, so. I think we should go with like an old grumpy man Scandinavian name because that is what attracted you yeah. first to this dog. Yeah. So like Ove. That's a good name. Or Ove. like Otto. Ove is, Ove is in the mix. Ove. And I mean like because the then he could be like an old man. The only reason we wouldn't go with Otto is because my aunt has a grumpy Swedish dog named Otto. 
Wait, in town. is that the really the big? big... Collie. Yeah, his name's oh Donna. no, no, no! He's not grumpy. He's amazing. Yeah. He's like a shelf. Yeah, he's just he just walks old... around and. But yeah, so we're getting a dog. Um, that's exciting. Heinrich. <laughs> Heinrich. Arnold. Heinrich would be very funny. Yeah, something like uh... that. <laughs> like at the dog park, this tiny little puppy. Like Heinrich, it's yeah. time to come in. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. So we're doing that. Um, I'm sure that it's going to be way too much work, and I'll instantly come to regret it. But I guess that's how it goes sometimes. But I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, no, it's going to be good. I'm, the real question, of course, is how, like, the manner in which you post about the dog, right? Because mm. that's like the, like, I feel like the way I'm going to do it is after I like let loose like five or six like really opaque, like vaguely political tweets that no one likes. I'll slap just like I'll just like slap a puppy pick in there just to like <laughs> keep people around because you know you start like hemorrhaging followers or whatever that happens yeah. anytime I do one of my really you know truly good tweets yeah you know, people just leave because they hate everything yeah. I post um, yeah you just you just return with the with the dog pick you know because I mean really what's the point of having anything in your life if it's not content you know yeah like. <laughs> I, I completely understand. Yeah. I mean, believe me, I'm a couple months ahead of you in this dog game, and I didn't even have didn't, a puppy. Yeah. How's the posting going? Do you get? The, do you, are you still getting those sweet, sweet faves? I with, am. With I am because people are charmed by the idea of yeah. meeting a dog in a in a public restroom and then oh, yeah, the and then taking dog, her yeah. home. Yeah. yeah. So it's mm-hmm. also really funny when she. Um, like lays on her back because then her gigantic lips flop open and then she looks like a like a derp. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. I'm yeah. so excited for you and Ove. <laughs> we'll um. see what we name it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's also of note to anyone listening. It is the dead of winter here in Minneapolis. The dog is not potty trained yet, um, so that's going to be probably a nightmare in yeah, a bunch of different ways. Dog's going to love you. Are you going to like put the little boots on them? We might have to get some boots. Some boots. Um, some we'll little see. booties. Cuz he didn't like it yesterday when we set him in the snow. I like took him out to just like He mean mugged you real hard well, yeah. after that. Yeah. yeah, no, he was not pleased with that situation. And frankly, neither was I. None of us liked this. Like that's the whole thing with winter. Um, is we're all miserable and having a terrible time. Speak for yourself. I'm in a onesie. <laughs> you are. So, not to derail. I was about to say welcome, but first we need to address the onesie. Um, I you're just in here in a onesie. Like I was very like cold. I, like, I was, I what was, sort of level of friendship is this that you think you can just throw the onesie on? To be fair, I've been mentally preparing you for over two months <laughs> with my onesie situation. Yeah, so, true. this is this is not my fault. This is your fault. Um, but yeah, it's really cold out. You came in talking about your cold footsies. Mm-hmm. So I felt cold because you were cold and then I, you know, fixed it. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the difference between you and me. You're a little more proactive about such things. Yeah. I love a sweatshirt for my whole body. <laughs> Man, you have just drank the goddamn Kool-Aid. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is the onesie up Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Um, so we're going to talk about comp titles today, the wide world of comp titles. That might sound a little flat at first, but I think that it's going to lead to a really interesting conversation about the way publishing communicates with itself, how certain patterns become entrenched, um, all sorts of things like that. And uh, 
Yeah, no, I'm excited to hear what you guys think. But before we do that, how about the basic rundown? Yeah, so we are approaching the end of February. Mm -hmm. We will have all three special episodes out to you um, this week, including a first pages show, Mm -hmm. a query show, and then there's a special first pages show that's Mm -hmm. coming. We're not going to tell you any more about it other than... Um, We're not recording it tonight because we needed to prep. So it's something that requires prep and forethought, which should interest you quite a bit. Which puts it in the upper echelon of print. Of our paid content. (laughs) (laughs) The upper echelon of our paid content. If you want access to all of these, head on over to patreon.com and check out Print Run. Um, Everything, literal days of content are available to you for $8 a month. Um, Almost days of content for three dollars a month if you put if you put the whole patreon catalog on and said i'm not eating until the patreon content has entirely exhausted you might starve you would die (laughs) and so that's how much content we're talking here there's so much content enough to starve yourself please don't do that please don't do that i don't need that i don't need to fill out that form no we (laughs) We don't need to go to HR about that. Uh, so head on over. Um, also, if you have any questions you would like for us to critique your first page, your query, if you have a Taloon It May Concern, if you have any suggestions for special episodes, anything of the sort, send mm-hmm. it to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So speaking of our print run email, yeah, we've been getting a lot of questions, complaints, um, to loon at me concerns about comp titles. Mm-hmm. And it seems, and I've been kind of catching this, like, tail end of this fever pitch online and in our inbox and, and you know, through Patreon and through um, the podcast about just a general frustration about comps. Yeah. Um, so I think first I want to touch on why exactly that is. What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, so to me, this topic is interesting on a lot of levels that actually stretch beyond, like, you know, the people you're talking about who are kind of frustrated with comps and who reach out to us about questions about it. Usually they're looking for, like, pitch advice, right? right? They're people who want to figure out how to do something with a comp title that's going to make an agent pay attention or something like that. Sure. Right? And that's a perfectly justifiable thing to think about as a writer. But it actually... I think the situation with comp titles actually stems way deeper into the industry than just that. Like, if you think of the writer to agent conversation as like the most peripheral orbital part of all that happens in publishing, mm-hmm. like, there's a lot of stuff that happens. Like, the reason people care about comps starts much deeper than that, I think. And it kind of got me thinking a little bit about not only. Um, how agents and writers talk to each other, but about how agents and editors talk to each other, about how editors and publicists talk to each other, about how editors and their sales teams talk to each other. How writers or how readers talk to one another. Yeah, it's just, it's, the thing that I think is, is fundamental to understand is that at its root, publishing talks about books in terms of other books. Sure. It's a practice that, I think on the one hand is really interesting, but also ends up with some with some serious flaws, and those flaws end up trickling down into a lot of the kind of you know conversations that we have on the show about how we want publishing to look and change, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, like the reason I think fundamentally, if we're like why comps, right? Like if anyone is trying to like get to the root of this issue 
of why do we care at all about this? Why can't I just describe my book as it is and have that be enough for someone, Mm -hmm. right? I think it gets back to the idea that publishing is a really, really inexact science, right, in a lot of ways. It's a lot of guesswork. It's a lot of trying to read tea leaves about reader behavior, about, you know, buyer behavior, um, about what people are going to want, what people are no longer interested in, what's on trend, all that kind of stuff. And the way that that fundamentally happens at first is by looking at what happened recently, right? Like the, the one thing, like publishing, I think, is like a really data-averse industry in a way that I think would really alarm people in other like anyone who works in like a real job would like <laughs> would like look at how publishing makes its decisions with regard to, for instance, how much money to pay for a book, you right. know, up front, or how much you have a budget to put into marketing, like or what to price it, any of this kind of stuff. Like it's all kind of done on the back of a napkin. And so much of that math on the back of a napkin, it happens originally based on comp titles. Which yep. is to say, how much did the the closest book we can find this one, the one we think this book is the most like, how did that one perform, right? Like, that's sort of the fundamental, like, honestly, that often is, like, the first piece of actual calculating that happens with any um, publishing decision that gets made is, okay, what's the closest book we can find that we can sort of use as a means of a template for how we want to publish it, how it might perform, so that we're not totally groping in the dark, only just and, like groping in a little bit of the dark. Exactly. Well, and it ends up you end up like in this really weird circular situation that we're going to talk about here in a second. But like the point is that comps at their root are a way of publishing for publishing to try to understand like what might happen with right. a given book. And so you see it all the time. Like I remember being in house and when we would prepare for like sales conference, for instance, mm-hmm. is where. Like, I, you know, really, you really end up kind of surprised by how much this stuff matters. Like, listing comps is a whole conversation that often has nothing to do with those books. It's about expectation. It's about how you're seeing or what you want the book to be, you know. Like, if you've got a, if you've got a historical novel, for instance, and you list only kind of other very kind of genre-focused historical novels – that's one thing, but if you list it as a, like more mainstream commercial books, then you're saying something different. Not necessarily about the style of the book, but how you expect it to perform, if that makes sense. And for like, who the book is for. Exa- exactly. Yeah. So like, there's all these – you can see how picking these sorts of stuff, it ends up being a signal to – right, like, like who the book is for is a, is a great way to put it. Like if I list all literary novels for something that's maybe like literary sci-fi – then a publicist is going to think, okay, I'm going to go to my literary outlets. If you list more sci-fi stuff, they're going to turn toward, you know, maybe the more genre-specific outlets. Yeah. And it just ends up being – what I guess the reason I find it strange and fascinating is so many of these conversations that happen internally end up having nothing to do about what's in the book itself, if that makes sense. Like you end up talking purely about – all these other books as sort of a conglomerate, like you t- you talking about it purely in terms of like descriptive profile. Mm-hmm. Maybe I mean honestly, I guess for anyone who listens to our query your first pages shows, like you talk about it purely in terms of metadata, right? You know, and I've always found that really strange. And so my question to you, Laura, is why do you think 
discussing the metadata, the things that kind of are outside the book itself, is as important or even in a lot of cases more important than describing like what happens in the book and the style it's written in? That's a really good question. Um, I, I think my answer for that goes back further, like 30,000 feet view of publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it comes down to the idea that humans are just really bad at processing information without something to relate it to. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's it's easier to have sympathy than it is to have empathy. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's easier to feel something or understand something when you can compare it to something else. And that's why metaphors are so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that when you take that and you put it into art, like there's so many things about a book that can never be described or explained except by the book itself. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that is not a good method of somebody deciding what interests them and mm-hmm. what something is. Yep. Because if, if like, think about, like, if browsing consisted of, like, just reading the entire book to, des- to decide if you wanted to read the yeah. entire book. Like, yeah. that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Right? And so... We as humans, and we do this for other things than books, but, you know, in in some industries there is more data, but, like, we do this for everything where it is, you know, you find something else to give your decisions context to come Mm -hmm. up with a reason to do something, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, And so I think... It's it's especially nebulous and frustrating in publishing because we're turning an art into a business and we treat comps as different things across the board. And we can get in a little bit to what that is. Mm -hmm. Um, We, for example, talk in the query show about comps being used to tell part of the story that hasn't been yet told yeah. in the rest of the query, yeah. right? So it's not just this is the comp by itself, but it is the comp is combining with the word count. It's combining with the genre and the title and all of these other things to create more of a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of shifts a little bit as we move in farther into the publishing process because you have less time to sell something. Mm-hmm. You don't have a 350 word document. What you have is then, you know, like comps on a book cover, it throw, you know, for fans of the Hunger Games yeah. and whatever, yeah. like it's a lot more of a I'm going to grab you sales tactic to go along with the cover and then to go along yeah. with the copy on the back. And so I think um I think fundamentally beyond, you know, how much do we pay for this project? That's really what it's for. But I I want to talk a little bit about what first Eric, I want to talk about the different areas of publishing and how comps are used mm-hmm. because I think it's going to reveal something really interesting yeah. about publishing as a whole and how they treat comps. Sure. So for queries, mm-hmm. um, I think I think it's pretty safe to say that there are two types of comps. There's kind of the like, and it's and it's all to finish painting that picture. But I I sort of think about it in terms of like comparative yeah. versus um, comparable titles. Mm-hmm. 
And so, um, like a, a comparative title is a lot more for me, like a, like a pitching thing, you know, yes. this book is Snowpiercer meets that. And it's, it's more there to like, as like a Hollywood log line, it's more there to pitch the idea it's descriptive. than anything. Yeah. It's descriptive. It's meant to like grab you with the hook of the book itself. Right. And then there are the more nuanced and infinitely more frustrating <laughs> comps, I think, which are the comparable comps, which are more of this is a book that belongs to sit next to this other one on the shelf. Yeah. So it's not like and a lot of people get frustrated In with comps. Right. A lot of people get frustrated with comps because they're like, well, I haven't found anything that's just like my book. And yep. what they're hoping to find is a book that's their book out there so they can say my book is like this. So that impulse right there is so yeah. fascinating because it's like that that bit really feels like a jumping off point to me in this conversation sure. because people looking for a book that already exists is I think the fundamental thing that no one will just say is happening with <laughs> comps across the entire yeah. industry, writers all the way down to like salespeople. And I think it's really the source of a lot of big flaws. Well, there's this fundamental discomfort with having to, like, describe your book to someone who hasn't read it. And the hasn't read it is actually really key because one thing I think authors think happens a lot less than it does is people in-house reading your book. Um, like, your editor has read it. Um, maybe a marketer or someone has read it. The publicist maybe read a chapter enough to pitch like, a lot of people don't read the books in-house. Like, I'm sorry. You don't be, have time to read the I'm books. I'm sorry to be the one to break it to you if <laughs> that's something you've thought. But it's it's definitely, um, you know, a myth worth dispelling. And so if nobody's read the book mm -hmm. um, and you – that that's a lot of pressure to put on an author yeah. to explain, like, give somebody the tools to really truly understand your book without having read it. And, mm -hmm. of course, that's what happens in sales and that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. early on in the process, you're trying to be as authentic as possible. Mm -hmm. And so I think the reason that people get stuck in the searching for books that are exactly like theirs is because they don't want to misrepresent their own writing. Yeah. And they don't look at it as a sales tool. Yeah. Um. But I, I think that that impulse of finding the book exactly like yours and if you're you're nothing is exactly like your book and it's always like plot. People are always going, well, my book has this like aliens inhabiting these bodies of these kids and that they have to do this, this and this and this. And there's no other alien books like that. It's like, well, nobody cares that there are no the alien least, books like that. At least and this is maybe like this is not meant to be a segment that digs into like query tips and stuff but <laughs> the least interesting and useful way to comp to a book is on literal plot stuff oh no absolutely I never i really don't care but what what i care about is like and what what everybody in the industry cares about are the thematics and we care yeah. about the feeling yeah and we care about the pacing and all of those je ne sais quoi aspects that can't be talked about in this is what this book is about mm -hmm. And all of those aspects, um, they're really, they're really, really hard to get at when you're considering, um, okay, I pitch my book as X meets Y, mm -hmm. which is how a lot of like beginning writers are taught how to do comps. Sure. But the really 
key part in this business is not the this is a book that's X meets Y. It's this is a book that will be on the shelf next to this book. Yeah. And it's that that je ne sais quoi shelving. Yeah. It's that, you know, for fans of Jennifer Egan Mm -hmm. or, you know, for for, you know, like whatever writer or whatever book out there that if it if it kind of embodies the same spirit, even if it's totally different or you can kind of or you can take two that embody the same spirit and then kind of sit in that middle. But it's an uncomfortable place to be. Yeah. Because it's unaccurate. Well, it's it's also paradoxical yeah. because the task, what you're trying to do, you're trying to do two things simultaneously. You're trying to show why your project is unique, yeah. but you're trying to do it in terms of things that already exist. Yes. And so that's incredibly difficult, and it's a very, I mean, it's a tough needle to thread, you know? I mean, that's that's something tricky to do, and it's not, I'm not even just talking to writers right now. I'm talking to editors, you know, or anyone whose job it is to talk about a book to someone else, and where when I think like big picture about so many of the things that publishing struggles with, whether it's adapting to a new trend, whether it's trying to, you know, broaden out who gets to write what kinds of books. Um, You know, I mean, even just this week, I feel like, you know, obviously there's, you know, a million conversations happening at any given moment about, you know, representation and fiction. You know, there's, um, if you're someone in my neck of the woods, you're constantly frustrated by who gets to write politics books you know, any of that kind of stuff, the reason that, like, if you look back and you think, okay, well, why does this keep happening? Why is it so hard for an industry that at every turn will tell you that it's progressive, right? Like, publishing loves to be, like, we're the ones putting out these necessary ideas that move society forward, you know? Um, but, like, the question then becomes, why is there such trouble in actually doing that, like why, you know, like we see, I feel like every single week, Laura, we get on, and I know that this happens because I log on to the Print Run Twitter account, and I've got like a billion notifications about whatever the latest, like, screw-up is, because people yep. add us as soon as anything happens, which is great. Please keep, continue. Keep doing that. Please continue to do that. Um, <laughs> but the reason I think these mistakes keep happening, and the reason we keep being forced to have the same conversations about the same kinds of books is honestly, it, I can draw a line to the practice of comp titles. Because if you think about how something gets published or how something gets decided to be published, if it's all happening in terms of people having a conversation that starts with, it's like this and this, you're only talking about existing things. And you end up in this kind of self-referential loop where the only books that you can kind of see a, a sales track for, and by sales track I mean like a visible or imagined path this is worth a lot of money we're gonna pay like, it yeah yes. like people talk about like sales track or like or positioning as a means of saying we can readily see how to sell this book and who might buy it and all that stuff and the problem with that approach as if the only way you're allowed to establish it is by books that have come before it is that it becomes really difficult to differentiate from that or to like if for instance if you're really invested in how disproportionately white publishing is yep and you're an industry that focuses on um, comp titles, well, then you're going to end up with a situation where most of the comp titles are from white people, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's most of the books. And then it becomes really tough for many, any of these houses to get away from that because you're dealing, you're only allowed to talk about stuff in terms of what's come before it. 
the trail the, hasn't been broken ex- in. Ex- yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so like so much of this stuff is like when you look at why problems are the way they are, a lot of it is just general um, ignorance or laziness or, you know, so many other things that we talk about a million different times on this program. But some of it is just the fact that we're all used to doing business in terms of books that already exist. And especially when it comes to like sales track and stuff or like if someone changes, um, and this is maybe a separate conversation, but you see this, you see this a lot when like an author, um, you see this fundamental discomfort in the industry when an author like changes genres or categories or something, because suddenly a publisher has to make a fundamental decision. Do they believe that the, the book is going to publish and perform like the previous book by that author? Or do they think that it's going to publish and perform like something in that category that the author hasn't written in yet? How do you make that decision? Well, I don't know, but it's it becomes really kind of... Have you ever had to make that decision? I remember, so yeah, I guess anecdotally, recently, like I've been, I've been pitching this book by this author. He had a first book come out, oh, six years ago, something like that, right? Sure. Did fine. And, but it was a different kind of book, right? It was a little bit more academic, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we're now pitching something that's much more commercial. He's in a different place in his career now. His platform's bigger, all that kind of stuff, right? Right. And it's a different project from, it's a different from book. where he was. And so I have found one thing that's been really weird is I've been talking, you know, I talk to editors about this. And, you know, people know him and stuff. But eventually you kind of end up at this point in the conversation where someone says, well, you know, we, you know, looking, they start, they bring up past sales. Yep. And they're doing that for an understandable reason that, like, if an author has a data point on their record, they're going to use it. It's worth looking at, right? But the problem with that is it was, like, at what point does that stuff become not useful? Does looking at what, because it's a different category of book, the author was in a different spot in their career, it was many, many years ago. And what. So, so these are all things that we tell querying authors to avoid with a comp title you know it's like if a book is six years ago and it's in a completely different genre and it's a completely we say don't use it yeah so then is it that we're holding already published authors to a different standard as terms of in terms of their new projects comps yeah no i mean it's i i think it's it's really strange and like one you know you can kind of it's always funny in publishing to me when that kind of stuff when you can kind of yank on the string a little bit and see how all this logic ties together because one thing that really happened that was interesting in this pitch process is it sort of occurred to me one day that the numbers on BookScan for this book yeah. simply weren't telling the story because BookScan is the service that people use to look up how much a book is sold, right? And it accounts for retail channels, you know, it accounts for Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, most... But not all of them, not, it's kind of I lots think the of number, them. The number I saw was like 85% of standard retail, but sure. that also definitely doesn't include like academic markets and more like specific focused, you know, stores like that. And Can you go to the publisher and Yeah, ask? and so what I did was I looked it up on BookScan and the number was much lower than I thought it was. And I, I wouldn't say I panicked. But it certainly, <laughs> you weren't happy. No, it certainly upset me because I knew that every editor looking at this proposal was looking at this number. They, the first thing I'm sure they did was look up this number. So I got the actual number from the mm-hmm. original publisher of the book. How, hey, how many copies has this actually sold? Yep. And they told me it was many times higher than the number. And so what I did 
is I started just following up. I was like, hey, I know you're looking at BookScan. I know that you're doing the thing that every publisher does, which is just look at books that have come before it. And I started passing along the actual number, and we were, were staring down probably multiple offers this week. You know what I mean? Like the, the conversation changed immediately mm. because people are like, it's just so predictable how people are using previous books and sales tracks as a means of like trying to fit what's currently happening into a past model, even when that past model doesn't even make any sense. You know so what I mean? A new and, book is so interesting because. Uh, a, a, a smart publisher yeah. will publish a book that fits a kind of like fills a hole that's yeah. there, yeah. but a not very big hole. It's like a that, hole that's big enough for one book. Such a good way to put it. In yeah. between, you know, two very successful books yeah. that have already been done. Yeah. And so you're kind of like looking for something that has been done before, but also for something that absolutely hasn't been done yet. Yeah. Um, and. And that is so strange to me. Mm-hmm. That is so strange to me. Because, yeah. like, and, and to be clear, like, I am very pro-comp. Well, I think they're incredibly I like, useful. I yeah. think they're incredibly useful. I like even pulling comps from video games yeah. and films and television. And I love I love pulling references from other, other parts of life because mm-hmm. I feel like that paints a really nice picture in a very good shorthand. Mm-hmm. I also like, like as an agent, I really love comps because it communicates to me how well an author is like prepared to to jump into publishing That's rather like than just writing. For me, it's even just the act of someone doing it and like understanding a what a yeah, comp is. Exactly, it's a even huge if, yeah. boon, like totally. from a from a pro- professional partner, which yeah, is what an agent is. And so, like, I'm very pro comp in all of these ways. But at the same time, like there's all and there's all of these arbitrary rules. There's mm-hmm. all of the like, you know, you can't use a comp that sold too many books because when it sells too many books, it doesn't actually say anything because when a book sells, when a book is a bestseller, it's a fluke. Isn't that funny? Like that that's such a great point and like I I'm, I'm thinking aloud now about how the internal comp game is going to change now that publishing is really stratifying. Like, there's no mid-list right. anymore. Right, it's all right? bestsellers everything, and... Everything is a bestseller, which you're not allowed to comp to because you there's no way we would replicate that success for anything. Exactly. And, and if you comp to anything else, the sales look terrible. <laughs> right, you know what I mean? Like, it's you do create this situation where if you are trying to... You know, most publishers, if you could ask them what they would like to happen, like in a perfect world... They would say, well, you'd want a really solid selling backlist. You'd want mid-list authors that you didn't overpay for but are just outperforming their advances, their cash and checks, your cash and checks. Like they would all – basically they would all kind of hint at the idea of wanting a really solid mid-list. Yeah. Except the means for building that in terms of like describing stuff in terms of – it's just non-existent because there's no precedent. Like you have to – eventually it gets at this concept and this is true of – whether we're talking about that or whether we're talking about um, trying to find new... Like, you have to be willing to break new ground. Right. And that's so... It's just... Publishing is just so risk-averse on that front. And, like, we say that a lot, too. We say risk-averse a lot. And underlying that is just the clinging, like, with its dying grasp need for precedent for everything, (laughs) you know? And... I don't know. Like, I think that that, I guess I wish, 
this is maybe what I how I would love for comps to exist in mm-hmm. the world. And I'm not going to get this role, but this is what I would like. I would want them to be used purely for descriptive purposes. Yes. But not for like sales track purposes. Even though I, I get like you know, we're gonna have published people listen to this. I get why you do that. Like and and it's really it's helpful an and it's accurate. Thing. Like I'm not but there has to be an added element of like just critical thought that takes things past, hey, here's a couple different track records. Which one do we think this new book is gonna match? And I don't know. It's interesting. I I like a good comp because or I like and when I say a good comp I mean you know a a comp that does what it what it is meant to do which is either to really hook me into the concept of the project or to really communicate what the reading experience is going to be like which are two incredibly different things um and you should never try to do both all at once pick one or the other based on what else you're strongest in um and it's supposed to fill the weakness but I I really I love a, a good comp because it also, like, as a reader, though, Eric, mm-hmm. I, I think I want to, I think I, 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 I want to, like, push back on the comps for sale purposes because as a reader, I find comps as, a, and even, like, the really overreaching comps yeah. that people put onto yeah. back covers of books, yeah. you know, where they actually do comp to Harry Potter and the blurb and that sort of thing. Um, But what it does is it helps me codify and put into words the types of books I like. Yeah. So it helps me figure out that I like really like intelligent, high chatter, Mm -hmm. like geeky, snarky, whatever. Right. It helps me realize that I am really into magic systems that focus on how complicated and how structured and how mon- mundane it is. Yeah. Like I'm really into all of these really specific little pockets. And as a reader, comps are a are a tool where I can speak with other re- readers about that. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's an aspect of the language that we use. And so I I feel like even though it's frustrating from like our perspective about yeah. like give this person more money, this comp is a bad comp. <laughs> um, I also, you know, like I that's why we get little clusters of trends. Yeah. Also. Yeah. Because um, and and this is a little bit um, counterintuitive because a lot of trends just kind of happen because you know just just by the way a human mind works. So like for example. Twilight hit really hard and it was kind of at the end of this big, you know, decade or so of vampires. And then um, because Twilight was really big, the next inclination was, okay, that's really big. Where do we go that is the same but different? Mm -hmm. And so the answer to what is the same but different from a vampire is a werewolf. Yeah. And then what is the same but different from a werewolf? It's general shifters. And you can see how this happens and, through precedent of books. And yeah. it happens with readers and it happens yeah. with writers. And it's very organic. Like this is just something that your mind does because they see something that they like that's very familiar. And then they'll take it and they'll shift it. And so that's how we got that weird little pocket of angels and demons. Mm-hmm. It's how we got that weird little pocket of mermaids. Mm-hmm. It's how we get all of these systems of trends but it's not somebody saying okay the trend is now mermaids it's it's a lot more 
based on that seeking comp behavior, which is what is the same, but also very different. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that that same but different is leads me into like the last like the last note I want to put on this, which is kind of the most notable example I think that's happening right now. Uh-huh. Um, and it sort of came up and it's the whole this whole book has been pitched purely on this one comparison, I think. And I find it interesting. I think that it's going to be interesting to see how publishing responds after the fact. We'll see how the book performs. But Laura, Marlon James just yep. wrote a new book. Um, it's called Black Leopard, Red Wolf. I have an arc on my mantle yeah, right no, now. I was about to, I bought it. Uh, my wife's now reading it. It's the next thing I'm reading as soon as she's done. I'm very excited. But do you remember how that book was pitched? And it's a not, black not, Game of Thrones. It was a black African Game of Thrones. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you a question, Laura. If someone put Game of Thrones as a, as a comp in a query, what would you do? Just Game of Thrones? Yeah, they said my book is like Game of Thrones, and they, they kind of just... Oh, yeah. if they said that, I would turn it down. Yeah. Well, why? Because yeah. it's too well, big, right? Well, it's it's too big, and there's a lot of parts of Game of Thrones I don't want to see in my list. Yeah. Like, I don't want to see a all white, weird, right. incesty <laughs> like, yeah. version of England. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sure. like, that's, like, I like a good, you know, this is a fantasy book D&D campaign, mm-hmm. but, like, it's a little much. However, if you came to me and said... I have an African Game of Thrones, that would be really interesting because immediately what it would do is it would pull me from the cultural context that I am not really into with Game of the Thrones. And seeing stuff, yeah. Right. And and you know, like all of the 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 tropes that I don't necessarily want to see in my list about, you know, basic high fantasy um in a in a British based world and instead would focus on oh the different politics and the different Mm -hmm. kingdoms but like set and like having to deal with colonialism and the african diaspora and like then it becomes really exciting because i'm holding on to certain aspects of that comp yeah but i've altered it in my brain yeah no that makes a lot of sense i guess just i think the reason I, i find the james case so interesting is because when a comp really executes like that one did and it really has because that was the original pitch on the deal announcement. It yeah. was the pitch while for years while we knew he was writing this yeah, book. Yeah, when he would talk it, about it. Exactly. Yeah. It made its way into every review of the book has to eventually grapple with – like there's always a line in every review of this new Marlon James novel that basically – addresses whether or not it feels it accurately represents an African game. Like, it just became such a common way of talking about this right. book that it simply couldn't be denied. And thinking back on our point earlier about, like, stratification, right? Like, you've got superstar authors and you've got, um, you know, sort of underlist authors, you know, like authors that are kind of struggling or aren't giving as much resources. Like, the way to kind of – if we're talking about creating new ground – it feels like we're in an environment right now where the people allowed to do it are the ones with enough star power that we mm. be- that we believe them when they comp to Game of Thrones. Right. You know, like who they have the clout to say, I'm writing this. And yeah. we say, okay, yeah, sure. But the only people allowed to do that are really, like, I just feel like he's such they a... They won the it's, man booker. It's, exactly, it's, exactly. <laughs> it's just such a lightning in a bottle case. But what you see when that happens, what's interesting about it is like, I don't know, he's, these books were presumably... 
you know, being written before this one, you know, was published and everything. But like, you know, just anecdotally, like diving into Pitch Wars the other day, which is, you know, a great kind of pitch contest that happens, you know, through online. Um, a whole lot of really interesting fantasy manuscripts set in Africa and set in other places. Yep. Um, and you can just kind of see how these, you know, trends in terms of what people are not necessarily, I don't want to say what people are writing because people have been writing all kinds of things. But it's how they think about it's, their it's writing. How think, yeah, it's how they think about it, and it's what publishing chooses to kind of emphasize and value. And you can see how these shifts happen purely in terms of what we're allowed to comp to. Yeah. You know, and it just, it makes for interesting fodder, and I, I guess, like, I don't know. But even that, like, what strikes me as kind of weird about this James case is... One, it, it excites me that an author could write something, like if someone's, I guess like it's to me, if something appeared in my inbox that was like, this is like Game of Thrones, I would probably think of it as canned and all, not all that creative of a pitch. Right. Right. But, so it really does intrigue me when an author is able to, has the clout and the chops to credibly say that. Yeah. And, but at the same time, the fact that we're waiting for, we're like the only person who's allowed to paradigm shift in industry is Marlon James. Like that I think is a problem and it's a problem that is created only because we're so, we have no imagination beyond talking about books that already exist. And the only people who are allowed to kind of get us to actually take work on its face and come up with a new sales channel for it are ones with, you know, their own star studded backgrounds, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, and I, this is especially difficult with yeah. the the categories I represent, yeah. where there are, you know, the big superstars. There's mm-hmm. the J.K. Rowling, there's the Angie Thomas, there's mm-hmm. the Ursula Le Guin, there's the Margaret Atwood, yeah. there's the J.R.R. Tolkien. And, you know, you have these writers with such big reach and especially in science fiction and fantasy, when the genre is predicated on pushing boundaries mm-hmm. of what is possible, of what people think, mm-hmm. of what stories can be, um, to to really need it to be couched in those terms. Um, like Marlon James could have said, you know, this is an African War of the Roses. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't have had as much of a, a much of a slash, I don't yeah. think. Do no, you, you think? No, you use it as a, I mean, that's the other thing that comps do, right, is if you, it so much comes down to if people believe you. Yeah. And people believe Marlon James when he says his book is something. And so because that's true, you swing for the fences. If yes. You're the, if you're the publicist, if you're the publisher, like maybe, I have no idea what Marlon originally pitched the book as, you know what I mean? But... The publisher probably said, can we call it an African Game of Thrones? And he said, yes, or they agreed that it was the right thing. And you absolutely go with that because when it's him, the press is going to eat it up. Yeah. And so you just swing, like you want the biggest association you can create in people's minds, you know, when you've got that kind of leeway. And I guess I just think like, it just like thinking again, like about, you know, your representative categories and mine too. It's interesting to me. Um, how comps can really be kind of a limiting factor, though. Mm-hmm. Like, if, um, you know, a certain, like, you hear this kind of pressure a lot, like, if a, if a book from a certain marginalized identity, you know, author, you know, doesn't do so well, 
there's always kind of a concern that that's going to be a reason to like publish less of that type of you know identity. Yep. And you see that in in you know like young adult fiction and stuff, but you also see it, I think, in nonfiction politically. Like as someone who pitches, um, the nonfiction I work with is primarily um, far left. You know, yep. it's pretty progressive, and I know that. Um, you know, I've I've had a lot of conversations with editors where I've been pitching, you know, a project, and they've all come back to me and said, "Well, this one and multiple others who presumably don't talk to each other, they they work at separate houses, you know, they all do things." I remember being told that one book, you know, had to kind of be tweaked or you know wasn't quite right, using a different project that had already been published as a reason why this book, this new book could never work. Mm. Several different houses told me this because of one book years ago that someone else not connected to my author at all had written and it didn't quite sell the way people expected it to. And now that was the reason why like every other progressive writer working in this category like couldn't publish their book. And it's crazy, you know what I mean? But like that doesn't happen. But the reason I think it's worth bringing up is not, um, it's because you know, certain types of people are given certain leeway, you know, like, you know, there's certain, you know, identities, certain, you know, parts of the political spectrum where you're given all kinds of leeway to fail based on, you know, past successes and failures. And there's some where it feels like you're kind of walking on a high wire a little bit. And so it just creates this situation where we really need to be able to get past, past track records as rationale for whether to publish something in the future, or you're all we're going to do is just continue to calcify existing patterns, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I I I fully agree with yeah. that. You know, I'm very pro comp, but not when it hobbles us as an it's industry. Used, it's used as a means of it's an excuse for saying no. Yeah, a lot of the time. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. We we've talked before on this podcast about um, editors saying no because they don't know how to quote break out the book. Yeah, this so and much that has is, to do with it. It's directly linked to comp titles. Well, so think of the imagery there. Like, I think that there's really a, you know, the telling is in, is in the language. Like, when they say break out, they're talking about being uh, being able to get that book broken free of the existing track. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, and the track is something that gets created from precedent of previous books that have nothing to do with your book. Yeah, exactly. And it's just really, I don't know, like, it's like we said, like, I think we, we've sort of taken kind of a negative turn on them as we've talked here, but, like... They're really useful, their description, but I think publishing really needs to get to a place where we're not relying on them as a means of deciding what to publish and yeah. how to publish. If we're not going to be a data-led industry, then we shouldn't be a data-led industry. <laughs> is the thing. Yeah, actually, that's like, a great way to put it. Like, <laughs> if we're going by feel, let me go by feel. Let yeah. me just make some shit up as opposed to like having to deal with like this one like piece of half data. You know? Yeah, like let me yeah. just draw a bubble bath and commune <laughs> with the candles. Like, like don't. Yeah. yeah, just don't don't put so much pressure on it. Yeah. Um, let's do a Taloon. It may concern. Please. Okay, I'm going to read this one to you. Okay, I'm ready. Dear Looney Tunes. Hmm. No one's ever called us that. That's nice. Late last year, I received my first short story acceptance from an online fiction magazine. Exciting, right? I was absolutely over the moon. I told my friends and family, shared the news via social media, and prepared to add this first real success to every single query letter. But that's where the fun ended. I signed what I assumed to be a basic contract. First world English rights only 90 days to publish or the contract is void and payment upon publication. 
As the months went by, I heard nothing from the magazine's editors. No email, no edits, no look at copy proofs or anything. I feared that the projected publication date of early 2019 would be pushed back until spring or maybe summer, which was a blow as I'm incredibly impatient despite my desire to be a traditionally published author. Yeah, I know. I'm working on it. A few weeks ago, I learned via the magazine's Facebook page that my darling short story was published. What? My stomach dropped as I had received no edits and no other correspondence from the editors. I had no idea when the publication date was supposed to be. I received no copy of the magazine itself, and I didn't receive payment. Granted, the flat rate payment is small, but still, can I really say I sold a short story if I haven't been paid? More than that, I don't even know if my story was edited. Friends and family purchased a copy to support both me and the magazine, and all I can think of is... I don't even know what it looks like. I'm also desperate to finally have a publication to list in my query letters, but what if a potential agent or editor reads it and finds glaring mistakes? What if the formatting is horrible? What if they cut or added things to my story? Do I have to buy my own story just to see it? It seems that way. I reached out to the editors in a short, respectful email. I waited a week after publication to bring them my concerns surrounding the lack of communication and lack of pay. Another week has passed and nothing. I think, dear Loon, that I've been ghosted. As agents, do you ever read potential clients' previous publications? Do certain publications have bad raps in the publishing world and therefore sway your opinions of querying authors? Any insight here would be great. Pursuing legal action over such a small amount of money is ridiculous, but I don't know how to have these other more important issues addressed. I'm at a loss. Thank you, Loon, for listening to my plight. Sincerely, going batshit in the Bay Area. (laughs) Oh boy. Okay, so um, before we get to kind of the last bits about how an agent might see this, let's kind of talk about the situation at hand, right? I guess I read this, and my first thing is, especially if they're like actively posting on Facebook and stuff. Yeah. Maybe that's just let's take the good faith explanation here for a second. I mean, we're probably past that, but like they're active on Facebook. Maybe you can send them a message there. You know, and just say, but like what I would say in that message, whether it's on some social platform that they're clearly using to promote the issue that they put out without even telling you um, or over their email or whatever it is, um, is that you're, you know, you want to talk to them. You're being reasonable. You have clearly been reasonable. Um, Remind them that you, you and I think probably they, you know, signed a contract. Yeah. And they need to honor it and you're ready to get the author's guilt involved. And I think that that's where our actual tangible piece of advice comes involved, comes again, because there's kind of this thing that happens. And we, I feel like a lot of the time with these sorts of questions, we end up recommending the author's guild, right? They're a good guild. They're a good guild and they're really helpful. But the reason I think we keep coming to them is because you've correctly sensed this like sweet spot between needing to do not needing to not get anyone involved like something you could settle with them just over email and communication and but it's like still a little bit like you know the the amount of like you say the amount of money maybe isn't that high or something so like why get like a lawyer involved but like that's why you've got this middle mechanism that's trade specific that can you know theoretically you know put the clamps on a place and say hey you guys are you know treating authors a certain way and they it's to be clear they are treating you a certain way here if they if this has gone down like you said. You know, Eric, even before I would do that, I would 
look into who else has been published by them in the past few months. Mm-hmm. Um, reach out to those other writers. See if they got edited. See if they were contacted. See if they were paid. And That's if they're not, idea, what that probably is. So it could be, you know, again, good faith. It could be something about your story and your project specifically. But what this probably is, is this lack of communication, this lack of payment probably speaks to a larger issue. Mm-hmm. It could be cash flow issues. It could be personnel issues. It could be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um And so it's really good to, like, gauge the win because a lot of... A lot of bad actors and not just in um, not just online magazines or magazines in general, but I'm talking about anybody doing this business. Um, A lot of bad actors will count on authors feeling alone and like they have nobody on their side to keep up bad behavior. Yes. And so what you can do even before you get the author's guild involved is like, yes, it might be not enough money for you to go to a lawyer. But if you can find 10 of you and then you can say, you know, send a, an email and say, OK, you have one week or we're going public and we're contacting an attorney. Yeah. Or we're contacting the author's guild or something like that. I would and start with the author's guild. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would do that, too. But that way, like, remember, like you as writers have power here, mm-hmm. like they're holding your money. And they published your stories without you, but what you have is you still have a voice. You have a voice. You also have a signed document. Yes. Like that is, like if you're if you're a publication that has decided up front, okay, we're gonna run this racket and we're gonna ghost people when it comes time. Pretty stupid cell phone to make people sign things. Yeah. Because <laughs> because they can you can now use that as a means of saying, hey, this was the agreement. Yeah. You know, it's time that we honor it. Yeah. And so I just, yeah, I mean, I think that your answer about, um, you know, trying to reach out to other authors who've been published by this magazine is, is a really, it's a really good first step. Um, but then, you know, as you hear things and if you don't hear anything, you know, go, you know, getting the guild involved is, or, you know, just kind of sending a note to anyone there is probably useful. Um, I guess, you know, otherwise, you know, looking looking down this list, you know, you have it sounds like part of your frustration or part of what you're kind of worried about here is how this is going to reflect on you. And I do find it interesting in all these questions we get, like eventually it comes back. Look, and Laurie, have you noticed this pattern like where authors will tell a horror story like this? Right? Is it my fault? Exactly. <laughs> like, will like, you blame me? Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, the answer is always no. The answer is always no. But like, there's this thing that happens where an author gets horrifically mistreated and then their primary concern is not how do I get justice? How do I get... It's are other people in the industry going to look down on me for either being treated this way or raising hell about it or whatever it is? And I would say in this instance, like just going through your questions here, do you ever read potential clients' previous publications? Yes, I do. Um, not because I'm like typically that's only like a positive only thing. Like I would never yeah. read a previous short story and be like, wow, that sucked. I don't want to. And I certainly wouldn't blame an author for something like maybe the page layout is ugly or there's like a typo because that's something on a magazine, not you. By the time I would get to the level where I would even consider reading short fiction from Mm -hmm. somebody whose novel I'm considering, Mm -hmm. um, I would have heard the story. 
Yeah. Like that's the thing. That's is a good like point. like a short story unless you are querying specifically for short stories is an entirely different medium. And so that matters so much less to me. Um it's also like in the past, you know what I mean? And so I'll look at it. But yeah. if if I'm looking at it, we've already like had the call. Mm-hmm. You've already like been able to level set with yeah. me. Yeah. Um Presumably, if this is a paid magazine, you would have also sent me the article. <laughs> you know what I mean? You yep. would have sent me the story. Yep. And so um, the answer is is a very like short and emphatic no uh, as a short answer. And then in long, it's no, this isn't your fault. And anybody who would care would like be talking to you specifically. Yeah. This is not something you need to touch on in your query. This is not, like you can still include that you were published. Oh, that's a good that's a good piece of tangible takeaway. Yeah. Um say you were published there. Like I would say yeah. cuz your question here like this next bit, do certain publications have bad raps in the publishing world and therefore sway your opinion of querying authors? No. Um I would say that yes, certain publications do have bad raps in the publishing world. No, they do not affect my opinion of the authors in terms of like you know, in terms of that. Yeah, you know, if like, they have a bad reputation, it's because of how they behave, yeah, it's not of them, what not they do. Of you. Yeah, exactly. Like it's not you know, it doesn't reflect on you. Um and so I would say that, you know, you've it sounds like one thing that you correctly have sort of viewed as a victory for yourself here is being able to like list a prior publication credit in your query letter. Great. And I would say that you still have like that victory has been earned and you should not feel bad about uh, listing that, you know, take what's yours. You know what I mean? And that's something that's yours. Like if that um, if you think that strengthens your letter and I think that it would, it seems like it would. Um, you know, list it. And these other frustrations, I would just say, like, start asking around, you know, ask the other people in the table of contents, you know, see if you can get a hold of anybody. And then just see, you know, any of these professional organizations, see what they have to say. But this, the thing I want to return to again and again and again with this question, like we had that, um, you know, question from someone about a small press treating them poorly a few weeks ago or whenever. Um, This is not going to hurt your reputation, I don't think. You know, like, this is something that is on them and i think that anyone who is willing to give your work a fair shot which hopefully is any agent you're talking to is going to recognize that yeah you know like so don't live with that particular anxiety like there's plenty of other anxieties to have as a writer like that one <laughs> like what are your comps yeah. like that's a that's a way better <laughs> yeah. one no don't don't worry about this though i mean in that way like there's things to worry about here like getting your money and making sure that you know you've kind of squared away with these people but um, it's not going to hurt your query. You should definitely list the publication credit because you did. It's true. You, you know what it. I mean? Like, yeah, it's like it would be almost an omission not to list it, you know? So um, I guess that's kind of where I land. Wonderful. Well, good luck, batshit. We wish you the best. <laughs> Um, thank you all the rest of you for listening to this episode of Print Run. Um, remember, special episodes are coming to you this week on Patreon, and we will see you for our last episode before we take our quick break to go to London. I was going to do an impersonation then and didn't. Um, oh, but we're very I was exci- so excited. Very, yeah. Excited. So next week is our last yeah. week before we take a couple off um, mm. to go like do agent work that's not in front of a microphone. Mm. Um, but don't if you're really, really interested in what Eric thinks about British beer, <laughs> make sure you follow us on Twitter. Follow that bird. 
follow that bird and also probably me because mm. I'll be taking way more pictures. Mm. Um, <laughs> we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you.